to Jeff and Terry. They're going to come up and share. Let's give it up for Chad. Yeah! Chad went on a bike ride. Oh, tandem? A triple? Chad and I are hopefully going to have coffee at 6 a.m. We're going to sleep in. And do it. Well, I just had a huge plate of spaghetti. And I hope that was what we were supposed to have on the menu. Yep, that's what I said. And I also went to the Senator Market and bought a $6, almost half gallon of ice cream. So I should have gone to Bend, right? And just gas money would have been cheaper. But uh, I didn't have any. Well, I had a little bit. But our kids are back home. We tried to get them to come with us tonight. But where have we been and what are we doing, Kari? Uh, if you're just here, um, our name for Jeff and Kari. We, uh, we're here at Real Life. We started 20 years ago and then we left 15 years ago. Uh, it's where we met. We have a lot of great memories here. It's where Jeff came to Christ. I think he's going to share a little bit of his story tonight. So um, we're just really glad to be here and we're available. So if you want to talk at any time, We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to hear your story. Um, yeah, so we're just, we're, we're glad to be here. And so far where we've gone, just a short recap. Um, we talked last night, like Chad said, about Acts. And um, specifically one of the stories we looked at was in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. And instead of arguing and bickering with each other, they are praising God and singing hymns and praying. And God sends a mighty earthquake and loosens their shackles and sets them free. And instead of going, oh, sweet, we're out of here, they stay and they preach the gospel. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And they have the opportunity. And it's a picture for us of what the context is of this, of this book. So we're looking at joy this whole weekend, joy in difficult circumstances. And this morning we talked about a little bit about the freedom of knowing that God is in charge of my sanctification. He began this work. He's going to complete this work. And so I do not need to strive and stress about managing my life. We looked at the freedom of knowing that other people's insides are not my business. So her motive or his motive, it's not my business. There is freedom to keep my eyes on Jesus and not try to manage the world. And then we looked at to live as Christ. And to die is gain, which is freedom from holding life so dear and having that fear of death and the lesser forms of death, which is pain and suffering, grip us and keep us bound. So that was what we talked about this morning. Um, and then we're going to dive into chapter two right now. And I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for these precious people, again, who are made in your image, every single one of them, fashioned and formed according to what would delight you. And I pray that you would chisel us into the image of your son Jesus, that we would bear your image beautifully, that we would reflect who you are, and I pray that um, tonight's message would be clear. God, please help Jeff and me to be clear as we communicate. Help us to not muddle up or mess up your word, but just to um, put it on display. God, that you would be glorified, that you would be pleased by everything that we say and do, and we pray that you would open up our hearts to uh, receive the good word that you are going to implant in our souls. So we love you and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm glancing at the time to make sure I don't go too long. But all right, we're going into Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians chapter 2 is probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. 
So just put that out there. Maybe Romans 12 is up there with it. Romans 8 is pretty great. Okay, that's fine, right? But Ro I, I love Philippians 2 because in my life, like there's kind of this joke that the, the right answer is always Jesus. Like if a pastor asks you a question, it's like, Jesus, like that's always the right answer. In my life, the, the right answer is always humility. Whatever's going on in my life, what, why isn't this working? Why am I struggling? Why is it, I feel like the Holy Spirit is always like, what you're lacking, humility. It always comes back to humility. And I think that humility and a humble mindset, we're looking at Joy's humble mindset. Honestly, with all of my heart, I think that humility is the secret sauce that is untapped potential for joy, for confidence, for freedom. And so I am super excited to jump into this. So let's look at the, the actual text. It says, my version says, so... If there is any encouragement in Christ, if you have New King James, it says, therefore, and when I was in school of ministry, which we both went to school of ministry at Calvary, yeah. we learned that if you see therefore, you say what? What's, what's the, the therefore, therefore, right? We all know that. They stole right? that from someone else. Right. You're yeah. saying, what's the therefore, therefore? What this is saying is context. You don't just grab something out of context and, and slap it on your coffee mug, although we do that all the time. We want to know what is the context of what we're talking about. So if you're saying therefore... What is the context? Well, we've already talked about that, so we're not going to go back to chapter 1. We've studied chapter 1, and we know that the context is suffering. And the context specifically is being united and fearless in the face of adversity. So that's the context of what he's talking about. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, we're going to stop there just in verse 1. So he's saying, if there is these things. Now, is Paul not sure whether there are these things? No, he's sure, right? He's not like, oh, I'm not sure if there's encouragement or not. No, he's saying, if there is any of this, so you could understand this if to mean since. Okay, this is, um, it's as if uh, I knew, I had just seen that someone handed Chad a hundred bucks. Okay, and I go up to Chad and I'm like, hey, Chad. If you have $5, can you lend me some money? Well, I know he has it, right? So I know, I know you have plenty to spare. And so you are obligated in the best sense of the word to share with me, okay? Paul is giving them an airtight argument for why they have everything they need to be able to live out what God is commanding them. He's saying, since you have all of these things, this expresses certainty. Now, Paul uses this, uh, this pattern of since then over and over and over in his writings. Okay? If you read through the epistles of Paul, it's fascinating because this is the pattern of pretty much all of his letters. He tells you what God has already done, and then somewhere in his letter, he switches and says, therefore, and he tells them what to do. Right? Romans is the clearest example of this. For 11 chapters in the book of Romans... Paul does not give a single command, right? No imperative sentences in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's simply telling them all the things that God has done. And then in chapter 12, he says, Indicative mood. It's all okay, indicative sorry, mood. Yeah. sorry, Therefore, present your bodies as living stuff. Right? He changes after 11 chapters. Right? We have such a tendency to just jump into, what am I supposed to do? What do I do? Five quick steps to the easy life or whatever it is. Right? We love to like, just tell me what to do. But Paul is constantly saying, this is what you have in Christ. We see the same thing. Ephesians. Ephesians, he's got three chapters of all the things that God has done for them. And then he gets into chapters four to six to tell them what to do. 
Okay? Galatians is the same way. One through four, sorry, Ephesians was one through three. Galatians was one through four. This is what God has done. Five to six, here's what you do. Colossians is a little bit shorter, one and a half chapters of what God has done. And then he jumps into what you're to do. But this is the pattern that Paul gives. And sometimes he uses this pattern, not in the context of an entire book, but in a sentence, which is what he's doing right here. Okay? He does the same thing in Colossians 3, where he says, Colossians 3, uh, 12, he says, therefore, as the elect of God, he's saying, remember, you've been chosen by God, not based on your own merit, by the way, right? He's saying, remember, you are the elect, uh, holy and beloved. Remember, you've been set apart as holy. Remember that you're already loved by God. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So he's reminding them of what Christ has done for them. Therefore, this is what you should do for others. Okay? Because we are God's chosen people, holy and beloved, we can respond like that to other people. Okay? That is the pattern of all of Paul's writings. So this is what he's doing here. He's saying, by the way, this is what you have in Christ. And here is our list. He says, encouragement in Christ. This word, I don't know if anybody cares about Greek words. I don't know anything about Greek. Just enough to, you know, toss it in like spice here and there. Periclesis. This is consolation. This is a, a cheering and supporting influence. This is coming alongside someone and giving them courage. That's what we have in Christ. He says comfort. This is the only place in the New Testament that he uses this word. But this is similar to the idea that he shares in 2 Corinthians 1 when he says, When we are comforted, sorry, when we are suffering... The comfort that we receive from Christ is the comfort that we then give to others. So when we suffer, it's like we receive a deposit of comfort from God. And so what do we have to comfort other people? That comfort. Every time we go through something, we are then given a gift that we can share with others. Fellowship. There's that word koinonia. Right? It's there, it's there again. The participation in the spirit. This is that teamwork. God has chosen us to be on his team. Therefore, we can choose one another. I don't know about you, but there's something profoundly encouraging to my heart about being chosen. When someone's like, you know what, I got a team or I got a committee or I'm doing this thing. Would you be on this with me? I want you to be on my team with me. Is that just me? There's something profoundly encouraging when, when someone, you know, we all know the story of either picking dodgeball and it's the last kid that gets picked. Maybe that was you. It's like the hardest thing is you realize like they only took because they had to. But when we're chosen, Paul is saying the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has chosen you to be on his team. There is participation with him. Affection, tender affections of the heart and compassion. So these are the things that we already have. He's saying Everything that you need, all of the resources that you need in order to live in this sort of love and unity with one another, everything that you need, you have in Christ. You have all of the resources that you need. So then what is he asking them to do? He says, because you have all these things, basically, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Now this is very similar to what we read this morning in chapter one, verse 27 and following, right? When he said, I wanna hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, right? He's hitting this home again and again. You know what would just bless me? And I guarantee you, I bet if Chad was to say, we're saying, what would bless you about these students? You know what would bless me? They were striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. If they had one heart and one mind and they were unified in, in Christ's love, this is a joy. Right? This is absolute joy. He's saying, have the, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What, is this, what does this look like? Really, the, the one word that would describe this is oneness. Right? That's what Jesus prayed for us right before he went to the cross in the upper room discourse when he has his last prayer in John 17. He's talking to the Father. What does he pray for us? He prays that we would be one the way that the Father and the Son are one. Right? The way when we speak of the Trinity and we speak of how like you can't separate them, they're one. He's praying that we would be one like that. That we would be one unified body of Christ. He's saying this is how you can complete my joy. Striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And honestly, I think that one of the reasons why we, and by we I don't just mean in this room, I mean like the American church, right? That we struggle so much with unity is that we aren't busy fighting for the gospel. We're not side by side for the sake of the gospel, right? As long as we believe that our purpose is our own comfort, or my own religious experience, right? I come to church so that I can feel goosebumps or so that I can get filled up or whatever those things are. And those things aren't necessarily bad. But if I believe that my religious experience is all about me, I'm not going to be striving side by side for the sake of gospel. Right? It's amazing how when we are fighting for a common cause, we forget about our divisions. Do you guys ever notice that? Right? When you are striving together for a common cause, you forget about all the reasons why you didn't like each other. In our family, uh, we are pretty big Lord of the Rings fans. Is there anybody else? That, okay, okay, a few. Okay, okay, good. I'm like, I don't know. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Some of you, right? You're like, I don't even know. Our son, Jeff bought him at, from a thrift store, bought our son Dutch uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy when he was nine. And he's almost 13. He's read it like a dozen times. It's and falling he's apart. Obsessed with Lord of the Rings. So because of that, we have had to be obsessed with, with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So, but, but, um, but in the let's just say the movie, right? Because I haven't even read all the book. But, but one of the powerful things that you see in Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with that, especially in the first movie, is that you see when all the different people come together for this council, and you have the dwarves and you have the elves. And do anybody who knows, do the dwarves and the elves like each other? No. No, they've got, year, I don't know, thousands of years of hatred. Talk about bad blood. There is long-standing hatred. And you can see it when they're all sitting around and they're looking at the ring and they're talking over each other. And they're like, oh, I'll go just because I know that you'd mess this whole thing up. And there is just animosity between them. And when they join the fellowship... Fellowship, right? Partnership, koinonia of the ring, they have to decide, you know what? You know what's more important than being dwarves and elves? What's more important is that we help this hobbit throw this ring into the cracks of doom. That's what's more important, right? That they decide to put aside their hatred 
and they decide to put aside their differences, they decide to put aside all the things that they don't like about each other for the good of something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Over the course of the nine hours of movie or whatever, right? What happens? And you see as they fight with one another and they put their lives on the line for one another. And at the very end, what is the line where they're like basically gonna die? And the, the dwarf says, I never thought I'd be dying next to a dwarf. And, and what is Legolas saying? How about dying next to a friend? Right? And everyone, at least I do, I'm like, oh, it's just beautiful, you know? It is. It's beautiful. I love that part. Like, I'd watch it over and over and over. I'm like, yes. Because in the process of fighting for something bigger than yourself, you get over our petty differences. That's what happens. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to, rather than focusing on yourselves, pursue something better. Now, how do we get here? How do we get here? He's going to tell us the secret plan, the path to this. He says, here's what you do. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Your, your translation might say rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is the secret. Boom. This is the path. This is how we get here. Conceit and rivalry. Now, what is rivalry? I was going to ask you guys how many here are competitive by nature, but I now know that you yes. all are because I watched you. Fine, fine, <laughs> fine, fine. Right? I was great. I love it. I love it's the amazing. game. It was awesome. Things like that are fantastic, right? We decide together that we're going to give it our all for the sake of the group. For the sake of the fun, right? Nobody was, I hope no one's going to go home and pout because their balloon was burst, right? But, but the inward sort of rivalry and competition and selfish ambition, do we have some of that? Yeah, we have some of that too. And that isn't for the sake of the group. That isn't for the sake of others. He's saying, we saw it in chapter one, he's saying that there's rivalry and selfish ambition even in the preaching of the gospel. So there can be rivalry and conceit just because we're sitting in a church or we're singing worship songs doesn't mean that we don't have that in our hearts. Right? We can have competition about who's better on the worship team. We can have competition about who, whatever it is. I won't even get into specifics. But can we just acknowledge that there is in our hearts a root of self that finds others threatening? When we feel like someone is encroaching too close or is possibly going to be better than us or take something away from us, we feel threatened. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone, right? This is a serious warning for us to do nothing out of rivalry and competition. If you feel that thing rising in your heart to begin to compete, kill it, right? Ask God to kill it. And it's interesting that Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. It's almost like he knows we're keeping score. He knows we're kind of figuring out where we line up in the pecking order. He knows that we have that competitive bent. 
And he's saying, you know what? Let me save you some time. Just go ahead and list out everyone that you know and put yourself at the bottom. Just make it really simple. You don't need a jockey for position anymore. Just put yourself at the bottom. Count others more significant than yourselves. You cannot lose a race you aren't running. And you cannot humiliate the person who humbles himself. Right? When Jesus says, take the low seat, he's saying, let me just save you some humiliation <laughs> from thinking you're the most important person and then having to be put down. Just take that lower seat. Now, how do we pursue humility? Right? This is one of those things, I don't know about you, but in my journey, especially, yeah, in my journey, it's like I knew, okay, I know that the answer is humility. I know that the answer is that I need to become humble. How do I become humble? Because if you try to focus on being humble, you're focused on yourself, which is pride, and it's not humility. Anybody ever been there? Like, it's this weird thing. It's like, a, it's like chasing a shadow. You know, it's like, as long as I pursue myself being humble, then I'm just focused on myself, and that doesn't seem to bring any freedom. So humility is not just, I know everyone's better than me. I know everyone's better than me. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. That's not humility. Right? So what is humility? How do we actually pursue humility? And he tells us in the very next verse. He says, let each of you look out. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to be all about what? Look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying, I want you to put all of your time and energy into seeking the best interest of others. C.S. Lewis put it like this again. He said, the pleasure of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. You guys heard this? If there is an itch, one does want to scratch, but it is much nicer to have neither the itch nor the scratch. As long as we have the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither but have everything else instead. This is freedom. When we can forget our precious selves and our image and our way and our comforts and our and we can get busy pursuing the interests of others that is freedom all right that is why i would say humility is the most freeing quality of life humility does not mean oh i just think i'm a terrible person humility is you know what i'm going to forget about myself and i'm actually going to care more about these people that i'm serving than about myself there is freedom incredible freedom in that. That's why I would say humility is not one virtue to pursue along with all the other virtues. Humility is the soil out of which all other virtue grows. So the fruit of the spirit, humility is not specifically mentioned in that. All of the fruit of the spirit grows out of humility. You cannot love someone unless you esteem them higher than yourself. You cannot be faithful in a difficult situation unless you're willing to humble yourself. You can't be patient unless you're willing to humble yourself. Humility is the soil out of which all godliness grows. It's the soil that a good marriage grows out of. It's the soil of being a great friend, of being a great worker. Humility is the soil out of which every virtue grows. And who personified this perfectly? Who lived this out more dramatically than we ever could? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, that word form, there's a few different, um, in your English translation, it says form a few different times. This first one is morphe, which means in its very essence, God. Through and through, he was God. He was divine. His very form, God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't count that as something to be held onto. I have my rights. I have my prerogatives. I have my way. I am going to demand all the godness. No. No, I'm not going to demand that. He's gladly willing to lay down his prerogative of God. Godness in order to reach us. But emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And this is a different word. This is schema. This means like fashion. This is like you would put on your schema, your clothes. He basically was in very nature God, and yet he put on skin, right? God in a body. That's who Jesus was. He was in very essence God, but he took on our form. Why? Because he thought it would be fun, right? No. There was nothing in this. This was all for us. Talk about placing other people's interests above himself. Right? We sang about it this morning or, or this night or I can't even remember. But where he took, he went from glory into a manger in the dirt. That's what he did. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Was it worth it for Jesus to humble himself to the point of completely emptying himself for our sake? Yeah. It was worth it. And he gives an example to us. If there is, if God calls you to humble yourself, I mean, I know there have been things that it's like, I feel like I'm going to die. This is so annoying. If God calls you to lower yourself in order to love someone or apologize or forgive someone or seek reconciliation or to serve someone, he will never call you to make a greater jump than he has already made. He has gone from the highest high to the lowest low. Any stooping that he calls us to do in humility in order to seek him is a tiny fraction of what he has already done. He's already gone before us. He's already shown us what it looks like. And is there, is there reward? Is there glory? Yeah. Right? God says, I will exalt you. You want to be exalted. You want glory, right? Nobody wants, we want that. We want to, we want to be lifted up. We want glory. How does this happen? He's saying through humbling ourselves. I think you have something to share about that too. Yeah. So the greatest among you shall be your servant, Jesus said. Right? He, he said that servants is not greater than their master, and he humbled himself. So whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a promise. This is the wisdom of the kingdom. It's upside down, right? This is the path to glory, right? This is the humble mindset, the path to humility, but it was really Jesus' path to glory. It was through the cross. And so it was an instant glory. He had to go through this. 
But is this not, is Paul not also sharing this for everyone so that they would see like, God's not going to let you down. Yeah. If you humble yourself, he's not going to go, oh, who was that? They, I, yeah, they're, they're nothing to me. Right. Carrie was telling me that there's this story of, I guess that those are the award shows. Are those coming up? I don't know. What All the award shows are coming up. But there's, I guess there's seat fillers. I didn't know this. I just thought it was all celebrities or whatever. And just some of them aren't seen on the no TV. Like whatever. But there's no-name people who sign up and dress well or whatever. And they're seat fillers because you've got to fill the whole thing. And they tried to move one of the seat fillers, you know, once. And they're like, no, don't you know who I am? I'm not, a, I'm not a seat filler. Oh, no, I don't know who you are. So he was not humble. Right? And we're not seat fillers. Jesus humbled himself in order to be exalted, in order to save us, but also in order to be exalted. And he has the highest name ever. When he comes back, it will not be lowly. Just like, like this. The brightness of his coming, he will consume his enemies. That's what it says. Can I go for 12 or do you want Do more? it. Yeah, yeah, keep going. You're good? Keep going. All right. Yeah. So, you got this example, and it's the picture, right? I mean, we could spend... Yeah. Kari has taught entire retreats just on this chapter, and specifically those 11 verses, right? So, cutting it short, but verse 12. Verse 12 comes out of verse 11, right? And every tongue... Sorry, I don't know if you read... So, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Even above the sun, we read that. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Under the earth, yes. <laughs> and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether in this life, where you get to choose and you are saved, or in the next life and you don't get to choose and you're damned, you will bow to Christ. And it's like, well, that's terrifying. Yes. And joyful. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, not just when I was there, but much more in my absence. Right? He's talking to them like kids. Like, hey, when I'm away, still do your things. Don't just wait until I'm coming back. But this is a unique phrase. And we trump somebody's uh, stumble on it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to, and to work for his good pleasure. The word work was used three times, at least in my translation, in the Greek. There's two different Greek word, or two different word, uh, words for work. Everyone who humbles themselves under God will be exalted. And this is not working for your salvation or towards your salvation or on your salvation or at your salvation. Like, you know, your midterms are coming up and you're just like, I'm not doing so well. And you go to office hours and you're like, hey, if you chip away at this, I'm going to see your effort and I'm going to make up the gap. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like, hey, if you get a 63, I'll give you a C, <laughs> which really isn't. He's this man's 100% obedience. You are saved by works, but not yours. They can't be. You were saved by Jesus' works, by Jesus' life, by Jesus' heart, by Jesus always doing what the Father wanted him to do, not only in his actions, but in his attitudes. 
So we no longer have to pretend that we got our life together because Jesus knows that we don't, and that is why he came. But we work out. We work out what God has worked in. Any of you ever work out? You're working out what you put in, right? I'm working on my caloric deficit and all that stuff. I do that, right? You just, maybe you don't count, but you're paying attention, right? And you can only work out what's been worked in. This is, this is our family. Hopefully we'll bring some of our kids here. This was us on a bike ride a while ago this summer. Uh, Heidi's there in the middle. She's not here this weekend, but Justice is just all smiles all the time, except when he's crying. And, and Dutch is uh, 12 there. And then we were on a bike ride. Well, this weekend, uh, all the leaves in our whole property fell down, right? This last week. And I was like, the rain is going to come. We're going to be gone. We need to leaf blow, right? But I have this little Ryobi battery leaf blower. It's just terrible. It's like, right? And so I just go rake. I just rake. It's a workout. I just rake it. But the leaves keep coming. And I say to Dutch, do you want a leaf blow? Like, we can do that. And he's like, well. And I was like, we have the backpack blower. Right, our housemates, landscaper, and so they brought theirs out, and he puts it on, and it's like blowing him around, right? It's so powerful, and so he's just like barely going. So I taught him how to do it, you know, there's this little thing. Well, do you see who's on my backpack? Right? Justice's favorite name, I'm on the left there, Justice's favorite word is backpack, right? And then he says, Dutch, that's Dutch, right? Dutch, backpack. Right? And he gets in the backpack, and I just do whatever. I just do whatever, and he's sitting on top, and he wants to hold the you know, GoPro camera and drop it and break it. He just wants to be there, right? He's leaf blowing. No, he isn't. Don't tell him he's not. We're doing it, right? And don't tell me I'm not moving all those, even though I have the little Ryobi one, Dutch is the one doing on it. We're working with the power, with the energy supplied to us, where otherwise we're just raking and we're get, making no progress and it's at dusk and it's dark and we can't quite see and we have this power. He doesn't say this in chapter one. He doesn't say this in the first couple verses. He says this now. Why? Because you have seen not only the, the opportunities to be united, you have seen the one who has humbled himself and has worked for your salvation. And now you get to work it out. The salvation he's talking about, uh, it's kind of a general term, it's really sanctification. There's different aspects. I've been saved from my past. I am now being saved in my present, from the presence of sin and the power of sin. One day I'll be saved from the presence of sin. He's talking about in the here and now. This is what's happening. This is a motivation. And love should motivate us. But if it doesn't, what does he say? With fear and trembling. Do you know that you fear someone you may fear some things, but you fear someone. You fear calling that person and disappointing them. I remember calling my dad in college. We'll share my testimony for tomorrow. But uh, in college, I said, Dad, I got to be. And I was, I was wrecked, okay? I mean, it's a terrible thing to say right now because I got a lot of bees after that. I was in engineering. But, Dad, I got to be. And he said, I'm so proud of you because he flunked out of college. Like, he just loved that I finally got to be. And I was just like, I just, I don't know. And he's like, so proud of you. You should celebrate. Went to Young's Kitchen. I don't know if it's around. Right? But God's commands, his command to live out right, this life is also his enablement. He's not telling you to, to do something impossible. Well, he did tell you to do something possible. Jesus came and he did it. And now you're, you've got the backpack. You've got the power and you can do it. You can work it out with fear and trembling. So this is fearing God. And I will not explain it away like, well, it's just this kind of reverence. And you kind of think about him. No, you need a captivating vision of God because you have a captivating vision of something. Someone's approval, 
even if that's yourself, which is a terrible hamster wheel to be on, uh, whether it's a parents or an ideal job or it's a five-year plan, or I've got to do this, and you're just, oh, you fear someone, you fear something, you must fear God. And if you fear the Creator and tremble before Him and awe before Him, everything will become very simple and clear for your life. Do you know that that's what motivated Jesus? It was the joy and the intimacy with His Father. But He said, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, He honored and feared and revered His Father. Now He goes on and says, there's something that happens from this, right? And I mentioned verse 12 and 13. Our part was verse 12, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's not a boss who's like, hey, go do all that stuff. And when you're done, come back and do some more stuff. He's like, I'm with you. I'm at work in you. I'm supplying everything you need. You will not fail because I am with you. This is what a loving parent does, supplying everything. And that is what he's doing for us. Maybe a way of saying it, he will make you want to want to do his will from the heart. And maybe that's just a simple prayer This you ask him this weekend. Like, I actually don't really want to do your will. It's an honest, don't live in denial. That's very honest. I don't want to do it, but I want to want to. And you become what you want. And you'll look like what you want. And if you want to do God's will, he will let you do it. Now, as we fear God more, and he does this in us, then disappointment enters in our life, and now we can deal with it, like Paul did. So he gives them an example. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Seems like he knows human nature pretty well. That you may be blameless and innocent. Your motives. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Man, when did they live? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's attractive. You ever been around a person who just, you just can't get them to complain? We just have a rule in our home, we can't complain. Like, like if one of us complains, usually it's, Maybe the smaller ones or Cardi's telling me, hey, don't complain. No, we're, the younger ones, we, we walk them through it. We send them back to their room. It's not like this you know, deep punishment, but you need to work through your attitude. You need to go to God. You need to come back to us, right? And we're not just you know, making them, I want to be authentic. You know, our kids never say that. But they want to, they're trying to learn how to manage their emotions. And you can, you can display disappointment you can verbalize that. There's a complaint that you direct to God, and it's called a lament. And it's all over the scriptures. Almost a third of the Psalms are lament. So if you feel like things are unjust, you don't bottle it up. Don't bottle it up. Every mid man with a midlife crisis has just bottled it up. Get a relationship with God. Get some community around you. And learn how to not complain. And lament to God, bring it to God, but not to other people. And he says, uh, holding fast to the word of life. You're holding fast to something, but hold fast to the word of life. It brings us life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. <laughs> That's amazing. There's a, there's a good kind of pride. 
Like, he did his work well, so that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul doesn't want to go through all of this and come back to Philippi and be like, oh, the church shut down. I don't know. Just, we just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> no, he wants to come back and see them thriving and meet people who he's never met before because they came to Christ out of whatever past. And that's what he hopes to see. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Like I'm willing to give more to this. Are you going to give more? Now, he has given the picture of Jesus. He actually is giving the picture of himself, which is a quality of humility where you can talk about yourself without pointing to yourself. You know, you've been in those conversations where it's like, well, that's a great story. I also have a better story. You know, it's like, could you stop doing that? But he's not doing that. He's actually including himself while they point to Christ. And then he's going to mention two people who the world would think, eh, they're kind of sickly. They're kind of weak. You know, they're not type A, alpha. You know, people, they're not those big personalities. And he wants to commend them. And he says, I hope in the end to send Timothy, verse 19, to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Like he's going to go and he's going to come back. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely, genuinely care, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's an amazing thing. He's basically saying, if I were to come or Timothy would to come, there'd be no difference. We're of the same soul. We're the same quality of person. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't know anybody he can send there. But Timothy. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in leaf blowing. Sorry, served with me in the gospel. I hope... Therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Man, this is so great. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. So we know that they know Timothy. They've met him. It maybe has been a while, but they know, yeah, it's like having Paul here. In fact, he's kind of, he's got a better sense of humor. He's, he's more fun. Like, yeah, this would be great. And then I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, right? My equal. And your messenger and minister to my need. In chapter four, we'll mention the, you know, the money that they sent for him. No one, when Paul got to Rome, we mentioned this, no one went and visited him. No one in Rome was like, you know what? The great apostle Paul's here. We should probably check in. Like we owe our whole salvation to him, like risking his life. We should, not a single person. So Timothy comes, visits him. And then Epaphroditus from Philippi is like, you know what I need to do? I need to trek 600 miles. <laughs> I need to hitchhike or, or walk or whatever. And he fell ill. He got sick. And he didn't want them to find out back home, as we read here, because they didn't, he didn't want them to worry about him. Like, I don't want them to be, you know, be sorrowed about it. I'll be all right. No, you almost died, bro. And minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. There's even a healing quality 
to preferring others above yourself. And even back in verse two and three, it says, look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. We're not saying like never do self-care. Like don't even shower. Just get up and serve people and like never brush your teeth. Just go for it. No, 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 no. They're going to send you home. Okay. There is a self-care that's just the basics of life. We have like, you know, habits our kids have to do. Like, hey, do you have deodorant on? Yes, I do, wife. No, my son. But these things, right? But it's not, you don't stop there. And because they didn't stop there, God had mercy on them. God allowed them to endure. Paul was on his death. He was going to die in prison. Nope, he lives again, right? Timothy's just with him. He gets to go out again. Epaphroditus, maybe he's going to die. No, he's healed. He gets to go again. Epaphroditus' name is like a term that they used to use, the pagans would use when they would gamble. It's got, like, Paul's like, this is a great play on words, right? Because he gambled his life. He risked everything for you and for me. Esteem such people. Now, what is Paul doing? He doesn't want to put himself above Jesus and he doesn't want to put himself above the others. In fact, at the start of the letter, he says, writing this to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. He doesn't even want there to be this like hierarchy. He wants everyone to be humble below Christ, serving one another. And the whole chapter, the whole book is drenched with that. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. said everything I <laughs> How do you like that for, how's that put you on the spot? It just looks at me. I'm going to pray for us, but I just wanted to underscore how rare it is to meet people who are genuinely concerned for the interest of others. Mm. I mean, Paul's saying that Timothy was the only guy he knew like that. It's attractive. And, and Epaphrodite's. The process, at least in my experience, in our experience in the last 20 years, the process of growing up with Jesus is that he takes you through a process of making you committed to other people above yourself. That's what it's like to be married, crash course. It's what it's like to have kids. It's what it's like to serve in ministry. It's what it's like, you know, we're... we're we're not to grandparenting yet or whatever, but the process is the process of slowly learning more and more and more and more that everything I do is for the sake of serving other people. And the sooner you can get that, the easier it will be. The sooner that that can become our motivation. We, we this is just a little side note, but we try to be very committed to being healthy just physically healthy and exercise and so forth. And that was a revelation to us a few years ago about that is how you serve people. If you can be healthy and you can be with your kids and be active and Lord willing, obviously that's in God's hands, but when we're 60, 70, if we can be healthy and still serving Jesus, that's important. The world tells you that you need to get your beach bod. You just need to look good. Right? That's what the world is telling you. You need to look a certain way. You need to, it's all about you and it's all about your image and looking a certain way. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Everything that you do is for the sake of serving other people. So I just, this is like my 
my old man standing on the lawn talk, shaking my finger at you, saying just the sooner that that switch can happen, and, and many of you are already living like that. I don't mean to assume you're not. Please forgive me if that comes across like that. I just mean the sooner that that switch can begin taking place, that everything that I do is for the sake of serving Jesus and serving others, so much freedom and joy and effectiveness and confidence will come. Does that make sense? Humility is the most freeing quality of life. Okay, let's pray. Mm -hmm.